0: I would invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 16. Almost done with the book. Romans chapter 16. We'll be looking today at verses 1 to 23. And for those of you who are visiting with us today, or if you didn't bring your Bible. You can find that on page 950 in the blue Bibles provided in the pew rack in front of you. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenae and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Parasus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pause for a second. And let's just go ahead and address the elephant in the room. We'll get to the rest of the text a little bit later. But by this point, you've got to be asking yourself, what are we going to do with this? Why would He choose... To preach a sermon on a list of names? It's a great question. Well, the first answer to that is because we believe that all of the Scriptures are inspired by God. They are all from Him. They are all authoritative. And therefore, we literally preach Every word, even the names. (laughs) You know a lot about a church by how it would treat the end of a book like this or certain portions of the Old Testament. In some ways, it speaks to our allegiance to the word as a church body. Even though you knew the names were coming, I don't think anyone in this room expected me to say, "You know what? We're actually done with Romans at the end of 15. We don't need this. This is who we are. We believe that all the scriptures are inspired, but we're not only addressing this today to be um, as some kind of badge of our allegiance to the scriptures, I also would like to point out that this text is here because of its relevance, its relevance. The Word of God, all of it, is not only inspired and inerrant and infallible and authoritative, it is also relevant. If we believe that God inspired every word for a reason, when we approach a text like this, then we have to ask ourselves well, what could that reason be? There is a reason. We can't dismiss it as, well, that's not for me or that doesn't speak to me. That's the way that the typical, weak, anemic Christian in America treats the Scriptures. They only think that the Word of God consists of the things that jump out to them. Ladies and gentlemen, it is all the Word. And therefore, it is always our responsibility to learn... What is it that God is teaching us? We may not have thought as carefully about it as we need to. So let me help you out here. In some sense, one can benefit from this portion of the letter the same way that one benefits from any historical correspondence. For example, have you ever read or found a letter from your parents to one another? Like digging through an old box in the attic? Or maybe it was a yearbook thing where you flipped to the back and you saw what their friends wrote to them. Some of it may have been funny. Some of it may have been amusing. Enlightening, I think, would probably be the best word because it gives you a window into their world, the way things used to be. The same is true of historical correspondence as well. I told you guys last week that I love to read about history. One of my favorite books is entitled 1776, by David McCullough, and it is a year history of the United States in that one year, 1776, and it is chock full of letters and personal correspondence from like George Washington to his wife and vice versa. It's fascinating. You you see what the world was like. You see a window into the way things used to be. And so what we have here is indeed a window into the way things used to be, insight into the life of the early church. But it's more than a window into the way things used to be. It is also a reflection of the way things should be. This part of the letter provides further clarity to what it looks like to partner together in the gospel. It gives you Something to compare with your own relationships that you enjoy in Christ. You'll see that Paul presents a partnership that is personal and that is meaningful. And repeatedly, he models genuine interest and affection and concern for the believers. And he expects that the believers will do the same thing. Practically, this leads you leads us to ask ourselves a couple of questions about our relationships with other church members in particular and other true Christians in general. Here's a couple questions that you can ask yourself right at the outset to help orient you to the practical nature of this text. First question is this. Do you experience this type of personal and meaningful relationship with Other believers in Christ? Do you get this from other believers? Now, for the sake of specificity, I want to limit this question to the church because that's a very concrete expression. This could be true, obviously, of any Christian anywhere, but let's, to make it more tangible, more practical, let's just ask that question about ourselves. When we come to Faith Bible Church, when we spend time with or see other believers who are also members in this church, do we feel loved and appreciated and protected in this place? Or if you're visiting today, do you feel that at whatever church you belong to? Second question. Not only do you feel this, but do you express this to other believers? Do you show love? Do you try to feel close to them? Do you... A consciously work together? Do you express appreciation and affirmation and, and offer protection? Those are the questions that we need to be wrestling with in this text. But for those of you who are true and careful students of the scripture, the, the bigger question that you have to ask before you even ask those is, all right, is this even a valid interpretation of the text? What gives us the right to say that this is the way that things should be as opposed to it just being the way things were. For those of you who are careful students of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation, you know that there is a huge difference between what is prescribed in the Scriptures and what is described in the Scriptures. For example, you go back and you look at stuff in the Old Testament, and you read the story about Abraham, and everybody's like, oh, we need to be like Abraham. He was a man of faith. But then you read a few chapters later, and, well, he sells his wife off, and he lies. And you're like, well, do we do that too? Well, what we know at this point about Abraham is that, hey, this isn't prescription, this is description, it's just telling us what he was like. So how do we know the difference between the two? How do we know if this here isn't just mere description? I would say that it is being prescribed to us for a couple of reasons. The first is the context. The context, Paul is describing what a meaningful partnership in the gospel looks like. You remember, he's been trying to enlist their support, right? He says, I want to go to Spain. I want to preach Christ in places unnamed. We saw that in the last part of chapter 15. And he's saying, I want you guys to get in on this. But he's continuing the letter. Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts. This is just continuing to go on. And what he's continuing to say is, hey... Even though I want the relationship to be formalized, you need to realize something. We already enjoy more of a relationship than you even knew. He wants them to know that because they share commonality in Christ, that they are already partners in the gospel. All he was asking for earlier than that was just some practical expressions of it. So it fits the context to say that, yes, this is prescriptive, but also I would tell you that it fits the content The content in the text actually turns from historical, like past tense, to relevant, everyday commands for you and me. And the hinge point happens at the last verse that I read, verse 16, continues into verse 17. Notice what you see there. After he's giving all these warm expressions and kind greetings, he says to the church, Greet one another. He's just modeled for them what he was looking for, and now he brings them in on it and says, you have a responsibility to play in this as well. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll explain what that is. And then he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. This wasn't just something for the church at Rome. This is something for the universal church. This is everyone who belongs to Jesus. And then notice verse 17. He gives another command, not historically oriented. It is for everyone. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. That still happened today. This is for us. And so the text shows us what Christian relationships should look like. Christian relationships. And you'll see two dominant features of these relationships. The first is an affection toward each other. And the second is a protection for each other. Affection toward each other and protection for each other. Let's look at the first. Christian relationships should be marked by an affection toward each other. That's in verses 1 to 16. Now, such affection is obvious in the initial reading of the text. Interestingly, Paul goes to great lengths to promote their partnership through loving and personal recognition. Now, and what I love about the text, if you stare at it long enough, you'll see it, Paul starts off with the people that he knows the best and then he moves to the group of people that he doesn't know as well and then he groups to the people that he doesn't know at all. And what I love about it is he doesn't give up on anyone. The people he knows, he expresses love and care for them. The people he doesn't know as well, he still has a reason to show love and care for them even though he doesn't know them as well as he wants to. And then when it gets to the mysterious group of people that he doesn't know at all, he still expresses love and care for them showing that Christian affection precedes just our awareness of someone, it starts off with the person that he knows the best here, and that is the commendation of Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. He says, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant at the church of Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, first we have here a commendation. No greeting here. A commendation means uh, Clo- I mean, excuse me, Phoebe has actually made her way to the church at Rome, and Paul is saying, she's presumably carrying this letter, hey, this is a good godly Christian woman, you should take care of her. She is our sister. A family term. She is a servant of the church of Centrea. Servant in most other translations is actually translated deacon. The the Greek word is actually diakonon. Sound familiar, right? (laughs) She was a female deacon in the church. Now, for those of you who grew up in kind of strange Baptistic backgrounds where deacons ran the church, let's be clear here deacons don't run the church according to the New Testament, they're servants of the church. So when we talk about a female deacon, we're not talking about a female pastor. We're talking about someone who was an officer in the church indeed, but didn't run it. They actually carried on responsibilities on behalf of the pastoral leadership to free them up. You see the prototype of that in Acts 6. But my point in sharing that with you was, she was a trusted individual at the church in Centrea. Centraeus was about six miles east of Corinth. That's where Paul's writing at this time. And so naturally, he had relationships with the other churches in the area, and he had met this woman, and he believed that she was the cream of the crop, and that when he needed to deliver this all-important letter, he was going to entrust it to her care the next time she was going to Rome. The text makes it clear that she was obviously a woman of some kind of financial means. It describes her as a patron of many. Another translation of that could be a benefactor. We don't really have benefactors in our day and age, but if you've ever read a Charles Dickens novel, you know what a benefactor is. It's typically a wealthy person who puts up money for some aspiring artist or craftsperson to be able to learn their skill. They basically pay for their education. This woman was a patron of many. She had, through whatever financial means she had secured, cared for many in the church at Centrea. That port city probably brought in a lot of believers and she was readily caring for them. And Paul says, on that behalf, on the fact that she is a sister in Christ, and on behalf of the fact that she has shown love and care for so many sacrificially, I send her to you and I want you to care for her in the same way. There's a lot of implications here, by the way, for new members coming into a church. <laughs> because she's going to be at Centre for a while. And he says, you love and care for her. She doesn't need a warming up period. She doesn't need to prove herself in some way. When she comes here from out of town, you love and care for her on the basis of my commendation. She is in Christ, and she is worthy of all your support. She has shown support in times past. You give her support now. And I think that's a great privilege of this church. We see people transferring in often, moving in from out of the area. We commend them to you as new members, as we will tonight in the members meeting. And what we're saying when we vote to receive someone into membership is that we will care for them as a sister or a brother in Christ. They are fully worthy of all the special care that should be shown to God's people. And that is one of the most fascinating facets of this passage. Look again at your text. It says that you may welcome her in the Lord, right? She's in the Lord, but notice this, in a way worthy of the saints. The expectation was that if somebody was really a saint, they got the special treatment. (laughs) There was like, they were the VIP. They got the red carpet. There was a special way that you treat believers. Sometimes we treat believers a little less than, but here scripture says, no, you treat them as something special. They are in the Lord. So some would treat her as a stranger, but Paul would have them treat her as a sister and as a saint and as a servant of Jesus Christ, even though the people in Rome had never met her. Now he moves on to another group. Notice the next group is here in verses 3-7, to and it becomes very clear that these are people that he knows very well. He commands the church to greet some individuals and smaller groups of believers in Rome. And if you're wondering... If that word greet is important, it is because it is repeated 21 times in this chapter. So what does he mean? It means, if you look it up in a lexicon, to engage in hospitable recognition of another. To engage in hospitable recognition. I would put it in this kind of vernacular. It means to acknowledge favorably the existence of another person. In our culture, we say hi Or we wave to other people. And when we do that, we are telling them, I see you. I recognize the fact that you are alive. Your existence is worth acknowledging. Now, I want to give that technical definition, because in my travels across the United States, I found out that some people don't think that's worth doing. Particularly people who live in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., I get a mixed reception to a wave here in Florida, depending on where the people came from, because not many of you are from here. But I don't get it. In North Carolina, I grew up, like, it was a normal thing. You wave at people. You're on your boat at the river. You wave at them. You see them. I mean, like, you're working. You see somebody drop. You wave. I mean, like, it was just a friendly place to be. You go to Los Angeles, and people think you're a psychopath. Paul says, I don't care where you come from. This isn't a southern thing. This is a spiritual thing. You greet one another. You acknowledge each other's existence. I know you didn't think you'd get such a basic lesson this morning, but this is what's here. Notice how he models this. Paul wants to greet everybody that he can think of, and at first he mentions Prisca and Aquila and their church. You see that in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well, and greet also the church in their house. Now, notice this. He gives this command to greet them. He's acknowledging their existence here. He's saying that they're special. And there's a pattern that shows up in this. He will always say, greet so-and-so. He calls them by their name or calls them out or identifies them in some way. So it isn't just greet, but he always gives a reason why he thinks they're worthy of commendation. And this is where you note-takers should be really careful to notice some patterns. Because what is it that Paul thinks should be called out? What is it that he thinks is worthy of commendation? This is where we'll learn our greatest lessons today. Notice how he describes Prisca and Aquila, fellow workers in Christ. People who risked their necks for my life. Now if you read Acts chapter 18 at some point today, you'll find the history of Aquila and Priscilla. And they were a force to be reckoned with in the ancient world as they themselves being tent makers were forced to leave Rome probably around A.D. 49 due to Claudius and his expulsion of the Jews which sent them abroad and they were tent makers like Paul. And as tent makers, they met him at some point. They loved Jesus. Paul loved Jesus. And Paul basically recruited them into missionary service. And they would serve in Corinth. And they would also serve in Ephesus. And one of their most famous endeavors was training that Old Testament like powerhouse, Apollos, who was another preacher, and showing him the way of Christ. This was a missionary team. And Paul says, these people served along with me. They advanced the gospel with me. And at some point, and we don't know where this is because it's not in the New Testament, they risked their life for me. And so I'm grateful to them and I want you to show my love and affection and care for them. And all the Gentile churches are thankful for them as well. You get the implication there. When you serve someone else in Christ, when you enable their ministry, you are enabling ministry to other people. Because they risked their necks to preserve Paul. So many more Gentiles were able to come to faith because of that. It just shows how important every individual is in the body of Christ. He also recognizes the church in their house. So, Claudius dies in AD 55. Presumably, they go back to Rome to pick up the pieces of their business, tent-making business, and being the people of some means and having a home of their own, it says that they began to enable a church to meet in their house. Now, let's keep in mind, history says that Christians in this particular time period weren't allowed by the government to buy places for meeting. So therefore, the only place they could meet was actually in a home. So they had a large enough of a home for that some other church planted from the original Roman church could meet in their house, and they used that for their, through their hospitality to serve the church. And Paul says, greet them, greet the church that's in their house. He continues, he says, Greet also my beloved Eponatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Notice Paul's language. My loved one, my beloved. Sweet term of affection. And interestingly, he was the first one to be saved in Asia. Now this blows my mind, because Paul moves into Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And he remembers the first person he ever led to Christ there. It's kind of like when a business opens up and they take that first dollar that they ever make and they put it on a plaque on the wall. (laughs) This was the, the first dollar that Paul made in Ephesus, if you will. This was the first convert to Christ. The text literally says the first fruits in Christ of Asia. He was the first one to be converted. And what's so fascinating to me is that Paul cares so much for these individuals that he knows who the first guy was to be saved and... He knows where they are 20 years later. He somehow knew that Epinatus was in Rome. He also calls out another woman here, Mary, who says she's worked hard for you. Maybe through Aquila and Priscilla, he had learned about Mary's hard work. And indeed... The word is a good one. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. In some way Mary had practically served in that church, and Paul says, That is worthy of recognition. Commend her. Salute her. Then there's Adronicus and Junia in verses I mean in verse seven. They were called kinsmen and his fellow prisoners. Kinsmen means that they're kinfolk. It could be spiritually, but more likely they came from the same tribe that Paul did as a Jew. But they're not just kinfolk, they're companions in suffering for Jesus. Here we have another husband and wife missionary team that had suffered with Paul at some point, or like Paul, in prison. And their ministry was was so effective that the spiritual leaders of the time, the apostles or the missionaries, depending on how you interpret that particular word. It can go either way. Knew of these people. And they were even in Christ before Paul was. But what I want you to note is that Paul is recognizing them because of the position that they enjoy in Christ and because of their practical service with one another. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because this would go on forever long if I continue to do this with all the names. I will. I will cover all the names. But I need you to attach some relevance into what we're looking at so far. Because I I want you to know, are, are you seeing any patterns yet? Paul's talking about Christian relationships. He's calling out specific things about those relationships. And so the question is, are you getting a feel for what Christian relationships were originally designed to look like? If you haven't got it yet, maybe you could jot these things down. You'll notice it in the rest of the names. First, Christian relationships were personal. They were personal. Paul knew their names. He knew their situations. It's like he had read Dale Carnegie before How to Win Friends and Influence people ever came out. You remember the famous line? Carnegie says, a person's name is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language. <laughs> Look, Paul isn't just trying to close a business deal. He's saying their name because he loves them. He says, greetings. He says, send my love. He calls them beloved. Paul knew where they were. He knew what they were up to. I was reading a book just a few months ago on neighboring. I don't recommend it. It's boring. But there was a great little quiz in there that commended for the reader like an evaluation of how well he showed love to other people. And this is the quiz. It was three questions. This is, think about your neighbors, and it was talking about your physical neighbors, the people around you. Maybe you could even do this test right now in your seat. If You're visiting today, you get a pass. But if you come here on a regular basis, think about the people that are immediately around you and ask yourself these three questions. One, level one of whether or not you can show affection and have personal care for someone. Do you know that person's name? Two, do you know something else about them that you couldn't know from just looking at them? For example, like, where they work, or where they're from. And then level three. Do you know some sort of aspiration or motivation or goal or struggle in their life? Something personal about them. I thought that was a great quiz. It seemed like it was Paul's job. To know these people's names, to know what was going on in their lives, and to know what they were working on together. It was a personal relationship that he enjoyed. And this was the strategy of the early church. It wasn't just love one another in some warm and fuzzy, indescript way. It was love one another concretely, tangibly. Get to know one another. Be involved in each other's lives. The early church father, Tertullian, who would live approximately 100 years after the Apostle Paul, was writing an apologia. He was trying to defend the Christian faith against its attacks. And in one of his tracts, he said that the best strategy for defending the faith was so that the Christians would love one another to such a degree that the pagans would speak about their love. And the famous line being, See indeed how they love one another. That was the apologetic. That was the defense. It was supposed to be characterized by this type of warmth, and this was supposed to show hey, pagans don't care for one another, Christians do. See the difference. It wasn't just personal, but one of the things you'll notice from the text previous and the text to come, it was also practical. These people were working together to advance the gospel. They were using their money to advance the mission. Some were working as tent makers. Some were leveraging their homes for the church to meet. Husband and wife teams were moving about to share the gospel in new places. It was indeed an every member ministry. Let me say that again. It was indeed an every member ministry. Not the ministers do the ministry. The members along with the ministers do the ministry. And of special note, we'll talk about this in a moment, Women played a huge part in the practical advance of the gospel. Financially, logistically, discipling other women, showing hospitality, caring for the needy. And then there's finally one thing that you need to note. This will be the most important. And I will say this just as openly as I can. If you do not get this, you will miss the point of the entire message. The relationship was not only characterized by... I mean, the relationship was not only personal and practical, but it was also positional. Positional. What I mean by that was it was rooted in the Gospel. These aren't just buddies or secular family members. They are family, and here's the term that keeps getting repeated over and over again, in Christ. In Christ. In the Lord. That's why He calls them beloved. That's why He calls them sister or brother. I mean, notice, Phoebe in the Lord. Prisca and Aquila in Christ. Epinatus. you can't see it in the English translation. I don't do this kind of stuff much. But literally, in the Greek, it does say, first fruits in Christ. And then Andronicus and Junia in Christ. The relationships were rooted in the Gospel. And let me be crystal clear about this, because if you don't know what I mean by that, I want you to think of there being only two families on the face of the earth. Paul describes this in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, if you want to look at this more later on today. There's only two families. You only belong to two. You're either in Adam, or you're in Christ. To be in Adam means that you will die as you inherited a sinful nature from him, and sin earns you death. So eternal separation from God is due you in Adam. That's the way we were all born. But Paul says that these people are in Christ. By that, we mean that we live as His death on the cross satisfied that sin debt, made us righteous, and we inherit the eternal life that He Himself possesses, and we get this through faith alone. So how do you get in Adam where you're born in Adam? How do you get in Christ by believing in Christ? And when you believe in Him, you become a part of Him. And when you become a part of Him, listen to this, you become a part of everyone else who is in Him as well. That's why we say that the church is a family. That's why Paul can be so warm. So notice that, that these relationships are personal and practical and positional. I will keep saying those words throughout. Now, now that I've explained that, Let's continue to work our way through the text. Verses 8 through 15 gets us the people that you don't know as well. But you're going to see the same thing. He's going to emphasize their position, their practice, and the personal nature of their relationship. The comments get shorter. Look, uh, verse 8 through 10. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachis. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. So, Greco-Roman historians tell us, by the way, an interesting comment here, that names in the first century world actually said something about you. So we name our kids anything. Like, we look at a book, and we think, oh, what's the most creative name? I remember being in the hospital, thinking of middle names for kids, like, oh, that one's cool. No, no, that one's kind of old. You know, we want a good name. In the first century world, you didn't really have a good stock of names to choose from, you were typically called what the people before you were called. So, by the time it gets to the first century, you have certain names that were reserved for the poor and the lower class, certain names that were reserved for the higher class, the upper class. It communicated something about you, the family that you grew up in. Historians tell us that the first four names here are all lock, stock, and barrel from lower class slave households. You've got Ampliatus. But Paul calls him out anyway because he is a loved one in the Lord. Notice, personal, positional. You've got Urbanus. He had clearly developed a reputation as a fellow worker in Christ. A man exhausting himself for the advance of the gospel. Slave name, and yet it's practical, it's personal, it's positional. Paul calls him out. Paul publicly expresses his love for Stachys. Again, personal. He says, you know, the world may not recognize you, Stachys, but I recognize you. Apellus is recognized as one who was approved in Christ. The verb here means that he was approved after some trial. It means to be approved after testing. So he stood up, or stood out in some unique way after a test. And again, we see positional, practical, personal. And then notice this. You get a whole household of believers at the end of verse 10. Those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, the way the Greco-Roman world worked, there wasn't really a middle class. You were either in charge or people were in charge of you. The prominent person here would have been Aristobulus, but Paul doesn't greet Aristobulus. He greets those who are of his household. This would have been the wife, the children, the slaves, any of the freedmen that had decided to work there. Again, not in our culture, but in that culture, these were the second-class citizens. And notice who Paul acknowledges, not the first class, but the second class Christ had made them something significant. He says, greet those who were in that household. He knows the family dynamics of what's going on there. Verse 11, it continues. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Again, somebody else who was related to him as a Jew. Also, by the way, someone of political influence. But Paul doesn't call out his political influence. Anytime you see a name like Herodian, you know that it's associated with the historical line of the Herod's. Paul doesn't care about that. He does also. He does care about those in the Lord who belong to the family of narcissists. <laughs> now, here's another interesting one. Paul not only knows of households that are Christians, but he knows that some households are mixed. By the way, that's most of us in the room. What I mean by a mixed household is that some are in Christ, some are out of Christ. And Paul says here, Look, I want you to greet those in the Lord who belong to the household of narcissists. Implying that there were some who were not in the Lord. But Paul knows. He knows the position. I mean, he's he's never even been to the church at Rome. But he's interested in what's going on and these people's situations and the unique ministry opportunities that that provides. Verse 12, Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphanea and Tryphosa. That one's interesting. These are female names. They're called workers in the Lord again. And they're likely sisters since it was practice for Roman parents to give siblings names from a common root. So, these girls are not just twins or sisters, but they are hard workers. Very practical in their service for the church. Notice the next woman called out here. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, this is fascinating to me because the the text actually tells us in the original that she worked very hard in the Lord. If you have the King James this morning, you'll see that. She worked very hard in the Lord and you're kind of thinking like, whoa, they only worked hard in the Lord and she worked very hard in the Lord like, man, that must stink to be them. (laughs) No, Tryphenae and Tryphosa are likely young because it says they are workers in the Lord, present tense. But here you have this other woman who is the verb is used in a past tense implying that she's already done her work. Because of that, she's been able to do more work than these young saints have done. And yet Paul recognizes it. He says, you've put in a ton of work for the Lord. You've done much work. And again, what do we see? Women play a major role in the advance of the gospel in the church even if they're not serving as pastors. It's really hard for us as 21st century saints to know the significance of so many women being called out in this first century context. This was unheard of. And yet, they played a major role. As a church, Faith Bible Church, that holds to a distinction, and we do this unapologetically, as a church that holds to a distinction between the practical roles between men and women, we need to continue to promote and recognize the vital ministry of the ladies that are within our church. Paul does this. And I have to say, Pastorally, I have seen some amazing expressions of this lately. I just wrote down a few. I'm not going to call anybody's names. (laughs) I'm not as daring as Paul is. Somebody gets left out. But let me just mention some situations. We have had in the last six months in our church, women exhausting themselves, caring for newer members of the church, studying and teaching the Bible to other women, opening their homes for the sake of the gospel, whether that be for their own personal proclamation to somebody who doesn't know Christ or to enable another servant to proclaim Christ, like a pastor or a missionary. We've had people organizing events and preparing food for gospel endeavors. We have women regularly risking health and sanity to watch a room crowded with babies so that couples can hear the word without distraction. That's a big deal. We have others diving into deep counseling situations to promote spiritual maturity among the marriages in our church especially. We have others spearheading contact with the lost in our community to communicate the gospel clearly. Ministry is advanced here through the men indeed, but also through the women. It is the way it has always been. We are all involved in this together. So Paul commends this type of labor, and so should we. I don't think we say it enough. But Paul's not done. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, what's his significance? Notice that he only uses this once. I love it. He is the one whom God chose. Some have said that this was the only Calvinist in the church at Rome. Now, Obviously, that debate wasn't around at the time. But Paul does say he's chosen. God the Father chose an eternity past for him to be in Christ. And that's a big deal. Again, it's that positional aspect. Now, for those of you who were with us in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you're going to recognize this name. Because Rufus is actually called out in Mark 15, 21. Interestingly, the same Rufus very well could have been the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross on the way to his execution. And you're like, well, that's a stretch. I'm sure there's somebody else who could have been named Rufus. Well, when you consider the fact that the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome, and Paul was writing to the church in Rome, and there weren't that many Christians on the planet at the time, it is likely that this was indeed Rufus, the son of Simon and Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. And what I find fascinating about this, is that even though Paul could have called him out as that, because that's a pretty big deal, right? What does he call him out as? Chosen by God. That's why he's important. He also mentions Rufus' mother. Continuing the family theme, right? And whoever his mother was, at some point when she had been in Jerusalem, presumably, she had not only raised her son in the faith, but you've got to remember, Paul at some point was a baby Christian as well, and this lady cared for him, and he said, she's been a mother to me. What a sweet and tender picture. It is personal, it is practical. And then you get to the people that he obviously knows the least, but he still calls them out in verses 14 and 15. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brothers who were with them. What he's doing here is Paul's identifying whoever he can. You know, sometimes we think that if the relationship isn't deep, it isn't worth having at all. Not for Paul. <laughs> he says, look, I'm just going to do the best I can with what I've got. And let me call you guys' names out, and I know there's some other brothers who are with you. Greetings to you as well. He does the same thing with the second group. This one's a mixed group, men and women. Philolog- Philologus and Julia. Nerus and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. He recognizes them as all saints. He doesn't know them that well, but he knows that they're in Jesus and they're worthy of commendation. And again, what do, in these relationships, do we see modeled for us? They're personal. He talks about them as family, as co workers. He pours affection out of them. They're practical. They're advancing the gospel together. They're positional. They are in Christ. Whether they be men, women, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, everybody's in, in Christ. And then to cover his bases, Paul hits everyone else in verse sixteen. Final group. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All right, let's just go ahead and say what this doesn't mean to put everybody at ease. First, if you're in a dating relationship this morning and you're looking for like the extent of the physical affection that you could show to your beloved, this is not your text. Okay? If you want some practical wisdom on that, come talk to me afterward. I did try to use this when I was 16. All right, second. It does not demand that we physically start kissing one another. On the cheek, on the mouth, or anywhere else for that matter. I know we interpret the Bible literally, but we also understand the cultural parameters in which the Scriptures were written. And we know that a kiss in the first century world was an expression of greeting or care or concern. You still see it, by the way, in some spots in Eastern Europe where men will still kiss each other on the cheek. It'd be nothing for a woman to come kiss a man on the cheek because that is just the way they say hello. Ultimately, what I want you to get here is not what the text doesn't say. I want you to get what it does say, and this is it. Appropriately express affection and care for one another. And sometimes that happens in the most practical and tangible ways. In our American context, it could be shaking someone's hand, patting someone on the back, or giving them a hug. And for those of you who would say, well, I just didn't grow up that way. I don't like that kind of stuff. Paul says, do it. Because it denotes closeness. i got to say, even though I did grow up in a culture in which this was prominent, I don't know, there's something about me that like, can be standoffish at times. And God arranged for me to be around a man for about six months when I was living in D.C. who was extremely affectionate. And every time I saw him, it was both arms around me, hug, and he had a huge belly, and it was awkward. But this was one of the things that I noted about that man. I never doubted, never, ever, ever, a single time that I was there serving alongside him, I never doubted that he loved me. And yet at the same time, in my standoffishness, sometimes people doubt whether or not I love them. Because I can do a decent job, Trying to dress nice, sit up straight, and be engaged, but not interact. Paul says, you show love for one another. You go out of your way to reach out and let someone else know that you love them. This is your responsibility, church at Rome, to love one another, even through simple cultural expressions. And notice it's not limited to the church at Rome. He also passes along affection from all the churches of Christ. They all greet you. How is it that Paul can say that all the churches greet you? Because this is what it means to be in Jesus. Of course. All the churches, all the believers everywhere would love the church at Rome because that's what believers do. It isn't. Now this is where things go beyond us because I said I want you to think about your own church for a moment. Now think beyond your church. This is about all the churches. This is why I'm constantly praying for other churches. There are other people that preach the gospel. There are other people that love Jesus. And we should acknowledge them too. This is what Paul is modeling for us. Greetings express the love that was the mark of the early Christian community. John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, By this will all men know that ye are my disciples. How? By your love for the lost. Nope. The needy? Nope. Your love for one another. That's the identifying mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, explains it this way. He says, The greetings express solidarity and affection between those who belong to the Lord. They are not merely secular hellos, but are rooted in the new life in Christ. So, Ultimately, we display affection and warmth with one another, not just because we need to be polite, but because we are family and we are associates. We are family in Christ, whether you like it or not. (laughs) What would this look like? If, If the church treated one another like family, what would it look like? Well, there would be some practical expressions of it at church, at the gathering. You would actually speak to people. There's a start. Second, you would get to know them. You would ask how you can pray for them. Like That, that could be a goal. I, and it's sound, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a smart aleck. I don't mean to sound like I'm being condescending. But I want you to know you're, you're doing a good job at coming to church. I am just encourage you to take a few more steps and get to know the people around you while you're here. You don't have to be on the greeter team. You don't have to wear a name tag. You don't have to send these people a personal letter. Just, it would be good for us not only to come, but to come early enough to meet other people, to get to know a little bit about them so that we could show love and care for them. And one of the most practical questions that you could ask, you just always pull this one out and it can get old, but it's a good one. How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? When away from church, we look like family as we acknowledge other people when we see them. So, if I see you in the grocery store, you wouldn't expect me to, like, cover my face and like, keep walking because I'm busy. But I would actually, like, go ask you. And I know, here's the, this is what I complain about sometimes. I'm like, oh, well, that's just small talk. Small talk shows love. Small talk shows love. Should it go past that sometimes? Absolutely, of course. Hey, but if you've only got... 20 seconds, take 20 seconds. Another way that you could do this outside of church is you pray for those other individuals. That's why we give you that membership directory and poor Jeff Edmund has spent an ungodly amount of time this week cutting books up and stapling them together so that you guys can know who's in the church, know what they look like, have their names, pray for them, and then serve them. I think it would be awesome. I don't have any Bible verse here for this. I just, an aspiration, pastoral aspiration, straight up. It would be awesome if everybody in the church, especially at a church this size, knew everyone else in the church because they prayed for them so regularly. And I'll say this, no one gets a pass to be a loveless hermit on the basis of their family background or their personality profile. I don't want to say it too strong. That's just, that's false. I love a good personality test like the next person. Myers-Briggs, disk analysis, I don't care what it is. I love to know about people's personalities. But listen, you can't define yourself on the basis of something that the word itself does not define you. You say, well, I'm an introvert. Get over it. You just don't know. We weren't that way in my family. Sorry. This is the way that it is in the family of God. It not only should look like family, but it also should look like church. I mean, associates. We work together, we labor together. At church, we joyfully gather together. When we're coming together, we're getting some business done here. We are edifying and encouraging other believers. Like, I have a job, and it isn't just for me to hear the sermon or to sing the songs. It's for me to lift up and build up other people while they're here. We lead busy lives, folks. And the reason why we set aside Sunday, a day of the week, is because the lives are busy, and therefore we need to leverage what we've got while we're here. This is the time that everyone's here. So get get your encouraging work in at that time. Be thinking about who can I encourage, who can I lift up? We do what it takes to encourage our teammates to keep advancing the gospel in their home, and their neighborhood, and their workplace, and their extended family. Look, you know how hard it is. It is draining to live out in a secular world all week that hates Jesus and doesn't care anything about the gospel that you love. Don't you need to be picked up? I know you do. And so do the people around you. Invest in them. What does this look like away from church if we were associates? We would check in and pitch in. Hey, how are things going? How's your ministry going? How is that? I know know you told me that your sister hasn't yet come to faith in Christ. Have you had any opportunities to to speak with her yet? Pitch in. Hey, can I watch the kids for you so that you could go out and do this ministry opportunity that you've been telling me about? We work together to mature new believers, to encourage struggling believers, to exhort wayward believers, and to proclaim truth to non-believers. That's what we're signing up for. We all have a job and we do it together. When we're placed in Christ, we're placed into one another. And so our positional closeness leads to practical closeness. And so Christian relationships are to be marked by affection to others. But there's another feature that you'll see in verses 17 to 20. And that is that Christian relationships are also marked by protection for each other. Protection for each other. Through the time, I can't delve into this, but I will say that even though we're open and embracing and loving, we're still discerning. We still should be careful about whom we show, to whom we show love because there may be some who would try to infiltrate our ranks. Not who don't know Jesus, but some who may try to infiltrate our ranks who will intentionally spread wrong doctrine and will potentially try to divide relationships in the church. I'll save that for next week. But that is an expression of Christian love as we practically not only show affection to one another, but protect one another. The whole scene here up to this point in Romans 16 is rather Rockwellian. Is it not? You ever heard that term? Rockwellian? It's in some dictionaries, not in others, but you know what it means if you know the painter. Heyday, 1930s and 40s, Norman Rockwell. He uh, did a good job at capturing the sentiment, the warmth of what seemed to be America's golden age. His most famous series of paintings was called The Four Freedoms. It was commissioned and done in 1943. And in this series of paintings, the most famous... Again, you may not know a single painting, but I'm pretty sure you've seen this one. It's called Freedom from Want. And we don't use the word want very often. What he meant was freedom from need. It's an awesome picture. What you've got is a Thanksgiving scene. And like the table is set, and there's three generations of family members sitting at the table. The younger kids their parents, and then there's the patriarch at the head of the table helping his wife as she is distributing this massive turkey onto the table. I mean, there's smiles, there's warmth. I mean, like when you look at that thing, you think that is what a family should be like. That is exactly what Thanksgiving is. The painting epitomizes the idealistic, quaint, and sentimental side of American life. It's the way things used to be. Or at least, it's the way we wanted things to be. Far too often, that picture is a far cry from the way things really are. Yet let's be clear. The Apostle Paul is painting a picture here, but he's no mere Rockwell. He presents us with this portrait of affection and protection. Not to strike up an unattainable ideal, but to portray a graphic reality. Romans 16, in other words, is not for our imagination, but for our instruction. This is the way it should be. It's less of a painting to be admired and more of a model to be emulated. And when we look at this portrait, we see those two dominant features. The one on which we focus today being affection. Let me give you a practical checklist to see if this type of affection is being displayed in your life in this body in these days. Checklist. Run it through yourself. You can write it down. Do it another time or you can do it now. Are your relationships with other Christians here personal Do you know them by name? Do you know more about them? Do you pray for them? Do you greet them as such? Do you want to get to know them? I had the privilege to meet with an incoming church member this week who told me, and it was a compliment beyond all compliments, he said, I visited another church and it was rather cold. He says, then I came to this church and I just felt warmth. (laughs) I'm glad he felt that. But I know not all feel that. Because we have a responsibility. Some of us are not there yet. Are our relationships personal? Are they practical? We we need more than, than good old southern nostalgia. We need partnership in the gospel. I noticed that as a youth pastor, I did it for five years. Every time I would do a fun trip for the kids, they were at each other's throats. Every time we did a missions or service oriented trip for the kids, they were closer than they'd ever been in their whole life. I just say this very practically, if you come to this church looking for a fun time, this is going to be a miserable experience for you. But if you come here looking to serve, to advance the gospel together with other believers in Christ, you will find yourself closer to these people than you ever thought possible. Is it practical? And then finally, is it positional? Is it in Christ? Maybe you don't have this affection and partnership with other believers because you yourself aren't in Christ. Maybe you're still an Adam. Like you're trying to conjure it up and work it up and you're like, it's just not happening. I don't really like these people that much. Look, I get it. The solution for you today would be to turn from your sin and your selfishness and to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You will be transferred into a different family. You will receive the Holy Spirit of God who will then enable you to love His people in a way that you were never able to do before. And if you don't know what that looks like or know what that means, talk to any of the members of this church after the service. They would be happy to explain it to you. And so in conclusion, If you are in Him, maybe you should pick one of these items from the list and pray now that the Holy Spirit would give you help to practice it or to improve upon it. Let's pray together now. Lord, we are in You. We are in You. And that's a big deal. For how we practically treat one another. We commend and encourage those who are doing this well. Convict and challenge those who need to grow, myself included. For those who are not in Christ. Convince them of the truth of the gospel. And place them in Christ today. May today be the day of their salvation. Help us now, even in singing, as we celebrate our union with you and all that means. In Jesus' name, amen.